Hi, everybody. My name is Michael Millerman. Great to be with you. You can visit millermanschool.com for information about my courses. Today, I'd like to read to you something I wrote on German thought in America. What the right needs to thrive is increasingly a matter of discussion. Art, literature, money, power, leadership. There can't be a future for the movement without them. But what about philosophy? Its effects are not immediate, and even wanting it to be effectual seems counter to its nature. Heidegger called philosophy useless, though sovereign knowledge. It's true, philosophy teaches us something about ethics, and therefore about the practical art of living. It orders our soul and provides us with the specific benefits that accompany intelligent order. And if we call philosophers those who educate us about desire, conflict, and competition, well, what can be more practical than that? Desire is the root of action, after all. But what about metaphysics and ontology? Who could care about that dimension of philosophical activity? What hinges on whether we have or lack truth about the whole? Isn't that kind of philosophizing merely a distraction from the political tasks proper? In other words, politics is about effective action, among other things. Metaphysics and ontology seem like they have nothing to do with being either effective or being in action. So what should we say about them? Should we care at all? The political relevance of philosophical ontology is an old affair. We have the figure of the philosopher king in Plato's Republic and Plato's own attempts at philosophical kingship in Syracuse, not to mention dialogues on philosophy and tyranny, philosophy and law, philosophy and the madness of crowds. Popper condemned Plato as an enemy of the open society, reminding us that philosophers are implicated in the realm of the political with its friend-enemy distinction even when they are primarily concerned with metaphysics. A good liberal today should be suspicious of metaphysicians. Imagine a Washington Post op-ed. Parents, are your children showing an interest in metaphysics? Why that might mean they're being radicalized. We see a kinship between philosophy and politics on the radical left, too. They are partly inspired, whether directly or not doesn't matter, by the theoretical writings of French Nietzscheans and French Heideggerians, about topics like the metaphysics of presence and other related jargon. They reject, these left thinkers, political Platonism. Plato's ideas for them are ineradicable reminders of an ever-present fascist threat to freedom and democracy. Plato, in their eyes, institutes rank, order, hierarchy, exclusion, and supremacy. No movement committed to equality, diversity, inclusion, and envy can tolerate that. Anti-fascism is anti-Platonism. So politics is somehow implicated in ontology and metaphysics, not only in ethics and morality, at least in the sense that egalitarian ethics often implies war on an egalitarian metaphysics. In other words, remember, the question here is, what's the political significance of metaphysics and ontology? The political significance of ethics, which has to do with action and rules for action, seems like could be an obvious case. The political significance of a study of something like desire Seems like it has obvious relevance. But again, what about metaphysics and ontology? And the case that I just made in the previous paragraph was, well, it's clearly important for the left because for the left, if you have a great chain of being, if you have an ontological hierarchy, it's going to be reflected in a kind of political hierarchy. And since some of these thinkers, the radical egalitarians, want to undermine all hierarchies, 
they also attack the idea of a great chain of being, of a higher and lower being, and therefore of higher and lower acts of soul and things like that. Okay, so that was the basic idea that for the left, metaphysics has that kind of significance, and they use the language of the metaphysicians sometimes when they talk about things like the metaphysics of presence. But what does all of this mean for the right? Okay, if it's clear enough how that looks on the left, what will be the place of philosophy, metaphysics and ontology on the right? Take the simplest case, the defense of eternity, first principles, fundamental values, and the pillars of the Western tradition imply you know, the defense of all of that implies at least the task of honoring the best known figures from the canon, Plato, Aristotle, and Augustine, enough to bring Athens and Jerusalem into view. So let me just explain that really quickly. Like, what role does philosophy have on the right? Well, if the right looks at the left and says, these are the forces of degradation and civilization destruction, and we want to have preservation, return, tradition, excellence, beauty, and all of that, at the very least, that means defending the pillars of the Western philosophical tradition, okay, like Plato, Aristotle, and Augustine. Thus, for example, in his book, The Great Awakening versus the Great Reset, Alexander Dugan, referring to the case of American anti-globalists, writes that we need to liberate the West. We need to liberate Plato, Aristotle, Greco-Roman antiquity. We need to restore the dignity of the Christian pre-modern societies, political thought, cultural values, philosophies, and metaphysics. So for Dugan, today's West has been colonized by political modernity, or we can also say now by post-modernity, which wages war against the true West in the name of cancel culture and global liberalism, which he calls the Great Reset. So the Great Awakening, I mean, you know, he didn't coin the term the Great Reset, but he puts a lot under the umbrella of that term. The Great Awakening must liberate the traditional canon from cancel culture. Okay, so in other words, Dugan writes that you have these forces of the Great Reset, globalist forces, anti-Western forces within the West. They're anti-Western in the sense that they want to destroy the foundations of Western civilization, erase the last remaining traces of classical, traditional Western civilization, and replace it with some sort of postmodern monstrosity. And so if we cast off the yoke, liberate ourselves from the mentality that has colonized the West, then we can free up the West for its proper self-expression, which of course will include Plato, Aristotle, Greco-Roman antiquity, the dignity of Christian pre-modern societies, political thought, cultural values, philosophies, and metaphysics. You see, the Great Awakening must liberate the traditional canon from cancel culture. But beyond the liberation of the great philosophers, from the civilization-destroying project of the Great Reset. Okay, so besides just defending Plato, Aristotle, the Bible, Greco-Roman thought, and all of that, fundamental questions remain. Who are we to take as our guide when philosophers disagree about basic issues? And how are we to interpret our past in the first place? There's no view from nowhere on the philosophical tradition, and our desire to let it live shouldn't devolve into treating it as a cultural decoration. So we don't just want to liberate the canon of philosophy from the postmodern cancel culture people in order just to have it there like nice relics in a museum, like antiques in your grandma's house or something. You know, they just uh, are some sort of cultural ornament. A first step is possibly to make them available to us again, 
but they can't just be there for us indifferently. We have to see what's at stake. We need somewhere to stand. Who will be our ground? You know, like, are we going to look at the philosophical tradition? Are we going to look at the history of the West from Nietzsche's perspective, from Heidegger's, from Plato's, from Locke's? Like, which position are we going to occupy once we've cleared the land of the postmodern debris and restored the possibility of a return? Who will be our fighter once we've opened the door to fundamental disputes? What is the right philosophy? In the last few years, there's been something like a resurgence of interest in Nietzsche on the right, probably most closely associated with online circles that champion life, vitalism, strength, power, Roman virtue, and master morality, borrowing rousing images from Nietzsche to stir the youth to excellence, heroism, and daring. This tendency, however, has been criticized by orthodox or classical American liberal conservatives who believe that pajama boy Nietzscheans, as they put it, are two-bit imposters, unschooled in the high-minded political wisdom of America's founders. In other words, besides the revival of an interest in Nietzsche on the right, there's also a more kind of constitutionally oriented right that looks at this dissident right and at its Nietzscheanism and mocks it and scorns it and says that it doesn't understand the basic principles of American uh, constitutional government. In his attempt to revivify the self-evident truths of 1776 as living principles for 21st century America, C. Bradley Thompson, the person I'm mostly referring to in this section, thus defends America's founding principles as objectively, absolutely, permanently, and universally true, presenting the metaphysical, epistemological, ethical, and political principles employed by America's revolutionary founders when they created the United States. So we see again in this quotation from C. Bradley Thompson that not only the right's war on the left, but even the classical liberal's war on the right requires that quote-unquote metaphysical principles are discussed. So again, this is me trying to make the case or trying to look at the question, what's the political significance of metaphysics today on the right? And you see that whether the right is turning against the left or the constitutional conservatives are turning against the dissident right, metaphysical questions are at stake in all of those disputes. Okay, again, C. Bradley Thompson invoked the metaphysical principles employed by America's revolutionary founders, and he argued that they are true, objectively, absolutely, permanently, and universally. If Thompson is right, I mean, if Thompson is correct, a Nietzscheanized right will be done with the natural right principles of the American founding. So here's what I mean by that. If there's a metaphysical conflict, just the conflict about the objective, absolute truth of these two radically opposed principles, 1776 on the one hand and Nietzsche on the other hand, then what that means is that the Nietzscheanized dissident right is going to be breaking with the principles of 1776. It's going to be rejecting American natural right. Okay, so that's what it says here. Uh, the Nietzscheanized right will be done with uh, the natural right principles of the American founding. This was the concern that Leo Strauss addressed when at the start of Natural Right in History, one of his books, he asked whether the American nation still cherishes the faith in which it was conceived and raised. 
America defeated Germany on the battlefield and, as it were, annihilated it as a political being, Strauss writes. And yet German thought deprived its conquerors of the most sublime fruit of victory by imposing on the Americans the yoke of its own thought. To paraphrase, America loses its revolutionary mind when it lets German thoughts into its head, as it does when it turns to Nietzsche. The risk is real. Previously, German thought had predominated on the American left. Now it has come to the American right. An old adage says that the world is won by those who let it go. Must America let go of its revolutionary mind in order to win back the American world? Are German thoughts the key to the American future? It's an uncomfortable and complex problem to consider, but there's no avoiding it. And we can't do much better than to take three German thinkers as our guides through the question. Strauss, Nietzsche, and Heidegger. If Strauss, Nietzsche, and Heidegger all agreed that Americanism had been defeated on the intellectual plane by German thoughts, then Thompson's strategy of recourse to metaphysical principles is a fool's errand. The metaphysical war has been won and not in America's favor. But there's another strategy more characteristic of anti-metaphysical American pragmatism, also inspired partly by Nietzsche, which can have its place on the right. Here, what matters is what works. If quote-unquote metaphysical truths culminate in an undesirable political order, to hell with them. It does not follow that society must become an egalitarian social justice smorgasbord of grievance airings and rectifications. Let me just say that briefly. So in other words, the left looks at the metaphysical tradition and says that the metaphysical tradition institutes political hierarchy that reflects the metaphysical hierarchy. For example, the difference between knowledge and opinion, being and becoming, what is and what isn't, what truly is and what isn't, the higher being and the lower being. So that ontological hierarchy gets reflected in a political hierarchy. And to the extent that the radical egalitarians don't want a political hierarchy or want a different one with them at the top, they say, let's reject metaphysics. And for them, the rejection of metaphysics implies a leftist egalitarian political ethics, okay, that kind of thing. But you could say, well, listen, let's reject metaphysics. Let's reject the idea that there's a higher or lower being, that there's absolute truth or that we can know it, and not land on the left with the radical egalitarians. Let's have a different model, which is anti-metaphysical or post-metaphysical, but still freer to decide what it wants to do with itself, what it wants to be. We tend to think of deconstruction as a leftist phenomenon but there can be a deconstructive right. It wouldn't care about natures, essences, and truths in themselves, that's all too metaphysical, so much as it would care about the practical effect of thinking and talking in terms of natures, essences, and truths. America can be defended as the land of the free to interpret themselves effectively, unburdened by either German or American metaphysics, and with a healthy disgust for degenerate self-interpretation. Okay, so that's just suggesting the idea of a postmodern American right that still has recourse somehow to the language of 1776, but without believing it to be objectively, metaphysically, absolutely true. Still, it's worth at least considering the philosophical issues on their own terms, meaning, you know, what 
do the metaphysical problems imply? So we had the left rejection of metaphysics, we had a right rejection of metaphysics, but what if we don't reject the metaphysical or ontological questions? So that's what I mean when I say it's worth at least considering the philosophical issues on their own terms. These three thinkers, Strauss, Heidegger, Nietzsche, are the ones to help us do it. Strauss said that between the ages of 22 and 30, he believed literally every word he understood of Nietzsche. Heidegger saw in Nietzsche the culmination of the entire history of Western philosophy as it stood at the threshold of another beginning. Strauss aimed to effect a return to Platonic political philosophy, and he used his unprepossessing, unparalleled talents as an expositor of moderation to remind us of Socratic wisdom. So Strauss embodies for us Socratic wisdom in its moderation in an attempted return to Plato, but as I just said, informed by almost a decade of believing literally every word he understood of Nietzsche. Nietzsche thought he was overcoming Platonism and Christianity, which he called Platonism for the people. And although he saw in Socrates the turning point, the vortex of world history, he faulted him for destroying the Dionysian spirit of tragedy. So in other words, Strauss, schooled by Nietzsche, ultimately wants to return to Plato. But Nietzsche had wanted to attack and invert Plato. Strauss brings up for us the problem of Socrates and gets us to think about it. But for Nietzsche, Socrates is a wholly negative figure, even though he's the turning point and vortex of world history. So we get this complicated set of relationships. We haven't even put Heidegger really fully on the table yet. We start getting this complicated set of relationships between Strauss, Nietzsche, Heidegger, the dispute over Plato, Platonism, Christianity. Nietzsche thought, as I say, he was overcoming Platonism and Christianity. And although he saw in Socrates the turning point, the vortex of world history, he faulted Socrates for destroying the Dionysian spirit of tragedy. Heidegger argued that Nietzsche was still dependent on Plato in merely inverting or reversing him. So against Christ, Nietzsche becomes the antichrist. Okay, against Plato, he becomes the anti-Plato. But without ever getting outside the Platonic metaphysics that has characterized philosophy until now. Nietzsche for Heidegger still characterizes being in terms of beings with the notions of life, will to power, and eternal return. Whereas Heidegger invited all of us to leap into a question of being directly, not as a way to answer the question, what are beings? Let me just comment on that. So Nietzsche thought that he was inaugurating a new teaching, for example, with Zarathustra. Thus spoke Zarathustra. Millermanschool.com, I have a course on it. Inversion of Plato and all of this. Heidegger comes along and he says, you're still trapped within the coordinate system that Plato himself established. And like all thinkers since Plato, including Plato, you, Nietzsche, have identified the meaning of being, B-E-I-N-G, through the question, what are beings? That for Heidegger is called metaphysics. To do that, to answer the question of being on the basis of beings, Heidegger calls metaphysics, roughly. So how does that look like in Nietzsche? Nietzsche says being is will to power. Being is life's overcoming itself. And being is eternal return. For Heidegger, those answers that Nietzsche gave as to what being is, are drawn from his thought about beings. Okay, It's weird. It's not easy. Difficult topics here. Okay, But the point is, Strauss, Nietzsche, and Heidegger, they, give a, they put us right into the whirlwind heart of the debate over the meaning of being in a way that we want to be party to that conflict. We want to see it play out and involve ourselves in it. 
So I had just pointed out the distance between Heidegger and Nietzsche over, you know, from Heidegger's perspective. And yet there is a Dionysianism common to both Nietzsche, as Lawrence Lampert has pointed out, and Heidegger, as Dugan has shown. Heidegger speaks of the drunk God. So I'm trying to point out here similarities and dissimilarities. You know, on one hand, Strauss's indebtedness to Nietzsche. On the other hand, their disagreement over the meaning and significance of Plato and Socrates. Heidegger's difference with Nietzsche over whether we're thinking metaphysically, identifying the meaning of being on the basis of the question, what are beings? That's a difference for Heidegger and Nietzsche. And at the same time, they're both Dionysian. Nietzsche clearly embodies the spirit of Dionysianism and champions Dionysus. And there's a Dionysianism in Heidegger as well. So as I say, there are some big things at stake here and it gets more complicated. There's a Straussian interpretation of Nietzsche that brings him closer to Plato than you'd expect. So on one hand, it's like Nietzsche and Plato are kept far apart. But when we read under Strauss's guidance, they start to get closer together. And there are speeches in Nietzsche's Zarathustra that bring him much closer to Heidegger than you'd imagine if all you're used to is hearing Heidegger's interpretation of Nietzsche. So it's a dizzying, disorienting affair. I hope I haven't lost you yet. Okay, Strauss, Plato, Nietzsche, Heidegger, Socrates, around and around we go and must go until we find our footing. Clearly something is at stake. Straussian politics, Nietzschean politics, and Heideggerian politics are distinct. Straussianism places a greater emphasis on moderation than the others. I don't think you'll find a more beautiful defense or example of wise moderation than in Leo Strauss's writings. Nietzschean politics, by contrast, go off with a bang. Whoever's not frightened by the heat and light is attracted by it. We've barely begun to consider what Heideggerian politics might be. Heidegger's Nazism kept that door closed. Dugan's Heideggerianism has opened an adjacent door, one that many would prefer stayed shut. Will Americans learn to speak with Heidegger of being, beings, B-E-Y-N-G, which we won't even get into the details here, sheltering, concealing, and docile? Don't hold your breath. Okay, it's not likely that Americans are going to start parroting or incorporating into their self-interpretation the language of Heidegger. A Nietzschean feast of vitality and power is more digestible for the American appetite. Maybe it's no surprise. Nietzsche considered diet's effect on character and temperament often, writing, for instance, that the rice-eating habits of vegetarians impels to the use of opium and narcotics. Bad cooks, he said, and the utter lack of reason in the kitchen have delayed human development longest and impaired it most. If we can learn to stomach Nietzsche, perhaps it's because he taught us how to stomach well at all. But man shall not live by bread alone. And Heidegger is a better guide to the word and to the problem of speaking being than Nietzsche, however much Nietzsche also understood. We shouldn't decide too hastily the question which German to follow. Okay, so in other words, I say we're thinking about Strauss, Heidegger, and Nietzsche. They all have conflating and contrasting and complex positions. And each of them has a different mood, attitude, or outlook towards the question of political affairs. As I said, Strauss more moderate, Nietzsche more radical, and Heidegger we don't even really know yet. It's not fully elaborated. And I also said it's not likely that Americans are going to take the language of Heidegger. They 
are more likely to have an appetite for talk of will, power, vitality, the language of Nietzsche. And you know, because Nietzsche wrote so much about food, appetite, and the stomach, he helps us to think about the people's appetite for certain ideas as well, I think. But as I say here, we shouldn't decide too hastily the question of which German to follow. The American right shouldn't just jump into the hands of Nietzsche, just jump into the arms of Nietzsche. You know, there's a question. Maybe it should jump into the arms of Strauss. Maybe it should jump into the arms of Heidegger. Or maybe it should go somewhere else altogether. Let's table a proposal. The right has this task. First, to recognize that philosophy matters, not as a cultural ornament, but as the pulse that kills when it stops. Second, to unearth a coherent account of the philosophical tradition from the rubbish heap piled upon it by civilization destroyers, tarantulas of vengeance, specialists without spirit and voluptuaries without heart. Not merely to pick and choose a la carte whatever flatters an existing inclination. Third, to find their footing somewhere in or in relation to the newly recovered philosophical landscape. You know, to recover what was there and then to find your place in it. Fourth, to take seriously the claims of other worthwhile philosophical alternatives, assessing their charms and dangers like spies in the land of milk and honey. Fifth, to do creative, inspired work, generating ideas, elaborating visions, and shaping the future on the basis of intelligent engagement with the most profound thinkers, never forgetting the muse. Sixth, not isolating themselves from other workers and warriors. No flight from the earth. No mere ivory tower existence. Okay, so you want the properly exalted thinking about the deepest and greatest ideas, but without a flight from the earth and without an isolation that makes itself politically irrelevant. Seventh, to again make possible a way of being in the world that preserves the dignity, decency, and diligence of a human life lived well, using all that we know and have available to us. So once you've done the task of recovering the philosophical tradition, of orienting yourself in relationship to it, of thinking through the other alternatives, of doing some creative, generative, inspired, musical, okay, muse-inspired work to develop that topic further, and all of that. Okay, not in isolation, but in partnerships that are essential and make sense. In the course of doing all of that, we also have to draw on what we know and have available to us, which may be different from what any of these thinkers had available to them. To these ends, the philosophical right must whirl like a dervish around Strauss, Nietzsche, and Heidegger until we find our center. So that was just something that I wrote called German Thought in America. I'd love to know if anything there resonated with you, which arguments you think are good and which not. Should the American right depart from the metaphysical truths of 1776, if that's what you think they are, from the basic principles of modern natural right? Should it turn to Nietzsche in that case? Should it try to find some sort of combination, some way of bringing German thought and American thought together? Is it completely just a mistake at all to turn towards people like Nietzsche, Heidegger, and Strauss? Should the American right, the dissident right, 
be looking at Italian thinkers? Should it be looking at maybe French thinkers, Russian thinkers, other American thinkers who don't get the attention that they deserve or whose ideas haven't taken on a place of foundational prominence like you think they should have done? I picked out Heidegger, Nietzsche, and Strauss because, in my opinion, they're the most thoughtful figures that we can study and learn the history of political philosophy from and the history of philosophy itself from. The meaning of history, the meaning of philosophy, the meaning of being. And Strauss is our indispensable guide to the political, in my view. Nietzsche and Heidegger, very clearly important on their own and to Strauss. So I thought I'd present you with these thoughts and give you a chance to discuss them, comment on them, accept what you'd like, reject what you don't like. Thank you for listening. Thanks for watching. I teach Plato, Heidegger, Nietzsche, Strauss, Aristotle, and others at millermanschool.com. So head over there and have a look if you'd like. And you may have seen I have a new book out on Alexander Dugan called Inside Putin's Brain, The Political Philosophy of Alexander Dugan. You could have a look at that if you'd like as well. Thanks for your time. See you in the next video.